this series was independently funded, so you could gain insight into how the media operates. Journalists rarely report on their own practices. If you're interested in hearing more from others under the spotlight, you can help by making a one-off contribution. Just click on the link in the show notes. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A wall of mud and water buried two ski lodges shortly before midnight. There is still hope, but, but, you know, one has to be honest, the hope is diminishing. They call him the miracle of Threadbow, the man who emerged from hell with hardly a scratch. Stuart Diver, alone, survived a landslide that devastated his Australian Alpine village home in 1997. He endured 65 hours of unimaginable physical and psychological torture while his best friend and wife Sally lay dead beside him. She was one of 18 people killed in the disaster. Yeah, there's the chair, there's the chair going up. Through live television, a nation watched and wept. As the dazed young man was pulled from the rubble and into the spotlight. An accidental celebrity in the making. Stuart's whole world changed as an ordinary Australian who faced an extraordinary event that was devastatingly traumatic and highly newsworthy. He unexpectedly rose to prominence, an unknown plucked from obscurity by a shrewd industry that feeds our fascination with adversity and the strength of the human spirit. The media wanted that hero-type person, that survivor, and that's how I'm portrayed there. And I'll continue to be forever in that light because that's how people saw it on TV. That's what's imprinted in their mind. Stewart warns that no survivor without media experience can educate themselves on the tricks of a competitive trade before being relentlessly pursued for their story. Stewart has seen it all, the invasions of privacy, the betrayals of truth and trust, the commercialisation of his identity. Journalists have to understand that they are in a definite position of power. They can change people, they can change the world by what they write or what they report. And I think that journalistic integrity is the ability for them to realise that. I'm Fiona Reynolds, a journalist and former media executive who helped turn Stuart's trauma into news and the survivor into a celebrity. To me, a familiar stranger. Now, together, we reveal the wrestle for control and the price of fame. This is the inside story on what it's like to become an accidental celebrity. Episode 3. The Sole Survivor. The phone rang waking me from a deep sleep. 
It was the ABC's overnight news desk. Details were sketchy, but at about 11.30pm on the 30th of July 1997, something like an avalanche had hit the Threadbo Ski Resort. I had to rouse a camera crew and drive two and a half hours from the national capital Canberra to the normally picturesque snowy mountains in New South Wales, home to Kosciuszko, Australia's highest peak. Devastation and despair at daybreak. That's absolutely unbelievable. Heat sensors and fibre optic cameras have failed to find any sign of life. 27-year-old ski instructor Stuart Diver and his wife Sally, a manager at the Alpine Hotel, were listed as among the missing after what was a landslide. An embankment had ripped apart. Tons of earth and trees swept one ski lodge onto another below, crushing the couple's ground floor apartment. Stewart later recounted how he was woken by an almighty rumble, crashing walls, shattering glass. They were trapped, Sally pinned down by a bedhead. She was screaming and then I heard the water coming. 25 seconds in, water came within five seconds. She was drowned. As rescue teams scoured the landslide site for survivors, Stuart drew on all his physical and mental strength to lift his nose and mouth up and out of the water that repeatedly burst through the wreckage. Each time the icy torrent subsided, he battled hypothermia and yelled for help from beneath a concrete slab. Cries not detected for some 54 hours. We have... Uh, located definite signs that somebody's alive under the site. Mr Diver was laying in mud when rescuers heard a voice from a dark hole saying, I can hear you. It took rescuers another 11 hours to tunnel their way in, stabilise Stuart and carry him out of his freezing tomb on a stretcher. At 5.17pm on the 2nd of August 1997, the survivor saw daylight. A human chain passed him up the hill to an ambulance as the cheers of onlookers echoed around the village. Yeah, there's the cheer, there's the cheer going up. They've got realise that here. They know that he's out. The remarkable scene was carried live on Australian radio and television networks. Millions tuned in that Saturday afternoon. This is Stuart Diver. This is the sole survivor of the Threadbow disaster. Stuart was rushed by helicopter to Canberra Hospital, where he received a hero's welcome. While Stuart was being treated for dehydration, minor lacerations and frostbitten feet, journalists maintained a permanent presence outside the hospital, desperate to hear from the man who made international news after dominating front-page headlines across Australia. Alive! Miracle on Threadbow Mountain. Sally died beside me. The consequences of the disaster were enormous. 18 people killed, a tight-knit community in mourning, and a nation asking what caused the landslide. Stuart at first assumed others had been saved, but soon understood why he became the primary focus of media and public attention. 
the television coverage was, you know, it could be 24 hours a day and the cameras were really good and the satellite dishes could get the pictures out live, etc. I think it was just coming into a, a really good time for the media to be able to really latch onto a story. And I think that at the end of the day, it was a story that had an, a massive emotional connection, even from very early on with a lot of people because there'd been so many people killed and there was one survivor. And I think that that is just a recipe for for um, media heaven for a story. So, you know, it wasn't complicated in any way. It was very simple. There was only one person you had to interview, one person who could tell the story. And so I think that attracted a lot of people to it. Police were the first to question a traumatised Stuart piecing together the hours before tragedy struck. His family then tried to limit visitors. They had no intention of allowing media contact, believing the delicate line between public interest and personal privacy had already been crossed at Threadbow. While rescuers were searching for signs of life, the divers refused to release earlier photos of Stuart. Two days was far too early to consider a public tribute to a loved one they hoped and prayed may still be alive. Reporters found another supplier, though, turning Stuart's image into a commodity. There was a photographer in town, one who works here year-round, and he gave to one of the media outlets all of the photos he had of all of the victims, everyone. In there, yeah, he gave them. Oh no, he didn't give them. We know he sold them. Um, otherwise, they wouldn't have had any photos. And the only photo they had of me was I was I was guiding a walk near Kosciuszko. I got a big straw hat on, um, which was fine. It didn't worry me, but because it, it doesn't worry me because I was alive. But it, it, you know, all the photos of whether it was Sally or all the other victims, yeah, it absolutely pisses people off. Community angst about the behaviour of some media during the rescue operation became part of the disaster coverage. A columnist with the Daily Telegraph newspaper defended the press, describing the attacks as ill-founded and immature. Informal complainants at Threadbow claimed unidentified members of the press have acted like vultures and there have been an unsubstantiated charge that one media representative masqueraded as an emergency worker to gain information. While I didn't see dishonest behaviour among the journalists at Threadbow, it wouldn't surprise me. Competition to be first with the latest was fierce. We were all searching for witnesses in between regular updates from emergency services. The aim is to not only tell audiences what happened, but help them comprehend the human impact and feel compelled to follow your coverage. There was little, if any, separation on site between the media, Threadbow locals or the families of the missing. Anyone standing still watching the complex rescue effort was likely to be approached by reporters for information or comment. They were fair game. Stuart can only imagine how the media pack roamed around the village. A lot of it was way too much in people's face. There was nowhere near the level of compassion um, shown to any of these people who'd um, obviously had lost friends or didn't know if their friends were missing or whatever. It was way too early and there was way too much, we've got to get the story and we don't care who we talk to. And I've seen some of the footage of it. I mean, some of the clowns that were on TV getting interviewed who had nothing to do with Threadbow, weren't even just happened to be here on holiday, that sort of stuff. And I think that that's what really annoyed um, a lot of the locals. When Stuart was found alive, the diver family felt fiercely protective. 
At the same time, they faced mounting media pressure for information and access. Parents Steve and Annette Diver and brother Ewan stepped in, fronting the hounding hordes at a press conference the day after the rescue. One television crew was then allowed inside Stuart's hospital room to record a short, simple statement of thanks to the Australian people and his rescuers. To all the people who have prayed uh, for me and uh, given me so much support over the last couple of days, um, it's been overwhelming and I don't think I would have uh, made it through. Questions were banned and the vision had to be shared with all outlets. The intention was to placate reporters, providing quotes and images in a very controlled way. Any reprieve from the media was brief, though. In a 24-7 news cycle, producing continual updates to meet an expected audience demand can be challenging. Emergency services and hospital staff were still inundated with requests while trying to shield the divers. Stuart granted paramedics permission to release a photograph they'd taken of him surfacing, not realising the rescue picture would be archived by media outlets and regularly reproduced to this day. Because I thought it was, you know, they had no other photos and I was sick of looking at myself in a straw hat, so they put that one and then that became that, that iconic photo. Now, the problem with that photo is that's all fine and well, but if you're um, a parent or whatever of one of the... Uh, people who died here, that photo, every time it's out there, brings you back to that day one. Now, if you've dealt with it all, it's all fine, but if you haven't, it's hugely traumatic experience. Stuart had no understanding of media practices before he was caught in a high-profile news event and involuntarily pulled from anonymity. It was the now-retired Salvation Army chaplain, Lieutenant Colonel Don Woodland, who put the intense media and public attention into perspective for the divers. A year before the Threadbow landslide, he counselled those devastated by Australia's worst mass shooting at historic Port Arthur, the site of a convict settlement on the island state of Tasmania. Lieutenant Colonel Woodland supported Stuart's family through the first press conference, then strongly recommended they find someone who could deal with the media. And he basically said, you will not be able to do it yourself because he knew the loss, obviously, that I'd had and the trauma I'd been through, and my family as well, obviously, and Sally's family, and he knew that if I had to continually do interview after interview after interview after interview and it wasn't controlled, it would destroy me. The Salvation Army placed a call on behalf of the divers and Donald's, Sally's family, to Harry M. Miller, a well-known agent who sat on the charity's media advisory board. He'd represented Lindy Chamberlain Creighton for more than a decade, since her wrongful imprisonment over the death of baby daughter Azaria, killed by a dingo. Miller was also hired to guide James Scott when he became an accidental celebrity in 1992, after surviving 43 days alone in the Himalayas. On day one as Stuart Diver's agent, he fielded 200 calls from what he described as bloodthirsty media hounds. From then until now, the Threadbow survivor has never doubted his family made the right decision. If you break your leg, you don't go down to the uh, local Mitre 10 and buy some plaster and just plaster up yourself. You go to a doctor and you get an x-ray, etc. I always go from that, you should surround yourself with the best professionals you can in that time. So whether the professionals are psychologists, whether they're an accountant or whether they're a media manager, you should always try and surround yourself with the absolute best possible people you can. 
The intervention of an agent featured in news headlines nationally. Harry M. Miller signs up Survivor. Harry M. has a story to sell. Bidding war breaks out for Stuart Diver's story. The Diver family gave no indication Stuart wanted a paid interview, although commercial media outlets were already willing to open their checkbooks for an exclusive. The region's largest newspaper, the Canberra Times, was never in the running, so it seems, putting everyone on notice. It is ironic that in the end Harry Miller's involvement will probably add to the poor image of the media, since in the public mind, media managers and the media are indistinguishable. The Diver family, thrust inadvertently into the flare of public scrutiny, can be excused for wanting an expert to manage its sudden fame and to help it through the constant demands ahead. And if that is as far as Mr Miller's role extends, well and good. The worst thing which can now happen would be for a bidding war to erupt and for Mr Diver's miraculous rescue to be cheapened in the process. Sure, there is money involved, and I've never had any qualms with that at all because we were always dealing with massive commercial organisations who were going to make a hell of a lot of money out of my story, and so therefore I've never ever seen an issue with that. So therefore the media, because they're the ones who love bagging out checkbook journalism because they're the biggest proponents of it, (laughs) the only proponents of it, and they're the only ones who always bring up that checkbook journalism is a bad thing, um, which I always find very strange, but then we'll just go and pay this other guy for an interview. Um, they, They will never ever talk about with a guy like Harry, what that whole other side's about, that and that protection side. They just, they, you never ever see it anywhere. The threat of injury to Stuart's privacy and portrayal heightened when he left the safety and security of hospital before speaking publicly about his rescue and recovery. News crews followed, determined to capture images, if not a few words, that would offer a further glimpse into the personal life of an ordinary man who had no say in the creation of his high profile. It's a total, complete and utter you know, invasion of your life. You know, Sally's funeral, so they were parked out the front and they were trying to chase us up the road to find out where we were going to the crematorium. And, you know, and there's lots of them. There's not just one little rogue journalist doing it. They have that definite, that pack mentality. And so they, they will just not go away. And, I mean, the sad bit, now I think is that if you even if you talk to them, I've realised they don't go away either. And I think that the only real way that the media understands to go away is when you get someone like Harry in and you do an exclusive and they know they just that they have no chance of you talking to them at all and you don't get the story. The print rights to Stuart's story went to the Australian Women's Weekly magazine. The front cover and eight page spread in the September nineteen ninety seven edition centred on how his love for Sally and family kept him going. World first, Threadbow's only survivor, Stuart Diver, relives his 65 hours buried alive. The Seven Network won the television exclusive. More than two million people tuned in to watch Stuart on the now-defunct Witness program. It was hell. Um, I'm scared of the dark and I'm claustrophobic. Miller stated publicly that the ski instructor would not be paid for the interview. Instead, he was employed as a special commentator at the 1998 Winter Olympics in Nagano, Japan, a trump card only seven held in the battle with rival networks. While it could have appeared Stuart was trying to avoid further negative comment about selling the story, he explains that was never the intent. That was a, a Harry special in that he said he didn't want me to just do interviews and stories with uh, Channel 7 and Women's uh, Weekly and just get money and that would be the end of it. From very early on he thought, oh, this guy's got some potential, he can talk, he, it might be good you know, 
maybe I could get him a job with Channel 7 Sports. So, and at the worst, Harry said, well, you'll get a good holiday in Japan and it'll be a good experience. We did end up, we filmed, did all the lead-in specials and stuff, which was just an awesome time. Like, And then back for the Olympics, and the Olympics was an unbelievable experience too. What they need is a consistent course so they can't have it hard at the top and soft at the bottom. And then at the end of it, they, the guy at EP said, oh, well, you know, we'd love to have you come and do some more work with Channel 7, etc." And I said, well, what are you thinking? And he said, oh, well, really, we are a football-based Station, would love to have you, you know, get on the round the grounds commentary team or whatever you want. And I just said, look, I'm not interested in football. So thanks very much. If anything else ever comes up, have a nice day. And people go, you should have jumped at it. It would have been unbelievable. Could have led. To-. I said, but football, seriously, walking around the ground, I can't, could not see myself doing it. So, and that was Harry's idea that that would be the stepping stone to maybe a career in the media. Yeah. Do you want he, a career in the media though? No, but no one asked me whether I wanted a career in the media either. Stuart Diver, the sole survivor, had effectively become a brand that could be further built to attract audiences and therefore advertisers. Other companies spotted the opportunity too, offering about 15 different product endorsement deals. For very warm clothing companies, there was a couple of food lines, I won't go into the individual companies, but there was um, a couple of food energy bar style lines and we declined every, yeah, we declined every one. I didn't endorse anything. So yeah, just because it just wouldn't have worked. And it was funny because at the end of the day, I mean, if you want lucrative, that's where you make, if you were in it to make money, that's where you make the money in endorsing stuff. So yeah, we obviously were not um, in the whole uh, arrangements with Harry purely for the money because otherwise he would have recommended I do all those endorsements. The ordinary Australian effectively chose authenticity over a celebrity lifestyle, turning down a multitude of invitations to red carpet events too. It's so far removed for anything that I ever was, ever wanted to be with Facebook and Twitter and everything else. Everyone can be a celebrity. So, I mean, I just hate. It's, it just has the connotations of Kim Kardashian and whatever, and it's, yeah, it, it never gels with me. A public figure, maybe, but not celebrity. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Stuart Diver has always felt he could be true to himself at Threadbow. It's home. The place where he suffered great loss is also where he feels surrounded by love and support. Today, Stuart is general manager of the resort, walking past the site of the landslide every day on his way to work. As a reporter, I wrote thousands of words about the sole survivor, but we had never met until this interview. He laughs about being greyer and older, but it was still a familiar face that greeted me with a smile at the Threadbow Alpine Hotel. Stuart hunted for a quiet corner of the lounge where he could reflect on the realisation that his everyday existence 
would be periodically interrupted. They just, there's a great distrust in this town of anyone in the media, which is the best thing ever for me being here, because especially in the ensuing years after, whenever anyone saw anyone from the media in here, I'd always get a phone call. So they all they protected me, the whole town protected me. So. Stewart's concern was to protect the memory of the 18 people who died at Threadbow for their family and friends by insisting on a clause in every exclusive contract with the media. We had total editorial control of every story we did, and so they could not print a photo, could not do anything. And the reason for that, people go, oh, that's a bit controlling. What didn't you want to tell them? The reason for that is because every single story they did, they had facts that were incorrect, they had ages that were wrong, they had names that were wrong, they had things misspelt, every single story. So we had to edit it for them. because they, they were, And they were people who'd sat down and done full-on interviews with you and they'd still get it all wrong. And to this day, I still am correcting pretty well every single journalist I've been involved with's work. There's little anyone could do, though, to influence the way Stuart would be represented by reporters and perceived by the public from the time he defied the odds. Although the portrayals have been overwhelmingly positive, friends joked in the early days that the man in the media wasn't the same one they knew down at the pub. It stands to reason the trauma that will stay with him forever contributed to the construction of a public image that doesn't quite match the private person. I always say that the, the two Stuart Divers, I mean, they created that, that Threadbow Stuart Diver, that larger-than-life, you know, strong, physical person who, you know, mentally tough and robust who could, you know, get through anything. And it definitely wasn't the soft, you know, the, the real Stuart Diver. Although what's perceived in the media is not fake or wrong in any way. It's just because it's only part of the picture. doesn't matter how good they do it. They never, ever get the real, like, that at 110%, especially because I made, you know, obviously decisions to control um, my emotions, etc. in all of those interviews. And I think if I hadn't done that, it would be, you know, there might be a different perception of me out there, I suppose. Stuart was adamant he would not cry on camera, instead putting on a strong and positive face for family and friends who were suffering. You're lying down there in a place which you could only describe as, you know, pure hell, um, and you're lying next to the body of your dead wife, um, you're not really uh, going to be too afraid of death because it seems like a pretty good option. He soon found that when survivors don't respond in a way considered typical of someone in grief and reporters can't prompt them to pour out their emotions, their behaviour may be questioned. Stuart was subjected to a minor public backlash through letters to newspaper editors. How could I be so cold after I'd you know, just lost my wife and all those people, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. So people definitely, and that's where I'd say that was where I let myself down. I really should have had a few tears on TV, you know, and just to give them what they wanted. I was not showing my true emotion there because I didn't want to, and then later on, then I'd go and cry for three hours in the shower because you, know, you just had to let it all out that way. But Probably it would have given people a, a truer picture of who I was that I did actually have an emotional side if I had not necessarily cried but definitely shown more emotion in that. And that's what I say. That's why it's not the best thing to interview people in even four weeks or six weeks after um, going through such a major trauma is because I was in survival mode for at least nine months after that tragedy. So I was every day, I was purely surviving. So I'd get out of bed survive, get through the day, go back. And I was functioning, I was doing interviews, I was talking to people, I was doing whatever, but 
I was still in that survival mode, and that didn't click off until really I did this hard work with the psychologist, which was nine months down the track. So if you go and interview a survivor, you will get exactly the same portrayal as what I did. So you will get an emotionless, clinical portrayal of what went on. There was positive sentiment. I had all of that stuff going on, but it was just absolutely clinical because there was no way in that mode that I was in, in that pure survival mode, there was no way I could even show emotion like that on TV. It's like a switch in your in your brain and it says, must do to our interview with this person, click and away you go. If you could change that, you would, would you? Yeah, most definitely. I, I do regret that, not because I always talk about in, say, a year down the track after I'd done a fair bit of work with the psychologist, one of the, my big premises is talking about your belief system and your love and kindness and compassion for your fellow humans and all of this sort of very much emotional, you know, use the word love a lot about, you know, looking after each other, et cetera, et cetera. And I think in that, in all those initial interviews, I didn't show any of that. Um, and that's a side that I feel is really important to me. And it's a side in, Interviews that have gone on after that, obviously, I'm only talking that first six six months, but interviews after that, obviously, then I did show that and open up a little bit more. But it's still, um, yeah, and I think it probably took a toll on me to, to do it, to, to say that I was um, having to stop, to control my emotions so much definitely took a mental toll on me. Two years after the landslide, Stuart began writing down his experience, drawing on his psychologist's notes. Agent Harrier Miller spotted an opportunity to publish, so the survivor teamed up with journalist Simon Boder, who interviewed police and emergency services based on the coronial inquest files they gathered. The result was the book Survival, which was turned into a made-for-television movie, Heroes Mountain, in 2002. Stewart learnt more about what happened above the surface by authoring the factual account. I just knew from being in town that rumour and innuendo and stuff that was going around the village alone, and I could imagine, well, if that then spread across everywhere else, there's a lot of factually incorrect stuff out there, and I wanted to put a few things straight. Stuart also wrote openly and honestly about how he hoped to share his life with someone again, although concerned that person would face enormous pressures. There were two fronts to it, and... Obviously, there was a bigger front, which is Sally's family, my friend's family, etc., how they'd accept a new person in, um, and which is obviously the major part. But the media also did play a role in that, in that I knew that they'd want to know who I was going out with, and then you'd have to do the story, and then if you ever got engaged, you'd do the engagement story, and you'd have to do the... And I knew that was going to happen purely because um, I knew exactly how they worked. So in the back of my mind, I was always thinking... Will the person I go out with be able to handle that sort of pressure or that sort of scrutiny? Not long after the book was published in 1999, Stuart found love again with Threadbow local Rosanna Cosatini. The couple were married in the Snowy Mountains three years later. Rosanna and my wedding is a classic story of the pack mentality the media going again and we hadn't sold the story to anyone we hadn't done any deals with anyone 
the Harry didn't even know we were getting married. We found out a week prior that um, from a mate in town that his brother was a photographer for one of the Sydney papers that they were he'd got tipped off they were coming down to do a story blah 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 so we thought well if they're going to come down and take photos we may as well go the other way so we did an exclusive with New Idea I think which was really good because they paid for a lot paid for all the security paid for that was quite a good uh, a good outcome there from the media but they started the pack mentality so they were all here on the night before the wedding and we knew they were wandering around town and the next morning they were all parked outside my house and so we stayed at another house that night and so we went and it was just family and friends staying there so they missed out on that but they found out where the wedding was they tried to run across the fields and then they got helicopters and they just was outlandish we're just sitting there what are you guys doing but we uh got to the reception then i was standing there and my mate went out who was the best man and he went out and he said, look, he said, guys, you just, you are not going to get the photo. And they said, look, we've been told we've got to stay here till 11.30 um, because it's, uh, yeah, because that's the deadline for the photo for the paper tomorrow. And then he goes, yeah, no worries. He goes, yeah. And he came back in and he told me, I said, we'll send them all food out. So we got all the food we're eating for the wedding. We Every course we sent out to them. And we sent them, we sent wines and beers and all that. And I understand they're there to do a job. They understand that. Quite possibly if they were in my situation, they would have done exactly the same as what I did in that they would have done an exclusive for the story because why wouldn't you? And, uh, and so therefore it was, there was no animosity, whatever. Stuart was by then used to dealing with the media, while Rosanna had to adjust to being in the public eye. Her personal life considered newsworthy because she married an accidental celebrity. Three weeks after the wedding, Rosanna was diagnosed with advanced breast cancer. A reporter found out and was going to write a story, so the couple participated to ensure a positive message. In 2010, Rosanna gave birth to their daughter Alessia, despite being told the chances of having a child were slim. Woman's Day magazine snared the family exclusive, encouraging readers to never give up hope. My theory is that if the newspapers were going to run with it, why not just do it ourselves and then we can you know, at least get some nice photos and <laughs> whatever from them and control it. And that's the same thing. It's back, it gets back to that control over it again. Rosanna lost her battle with breast cancer in 2015. 18 months later, Stuart shared what it's like being both mum and dad to Alessia. Then came the 20th anniversary of the Threadbow landslide. While talking about his experiences has been cathartic, each feature story over the years has included that iconic image of the survivor being pulled by paramedics from the landslide rubble. I've definitely been forced to relive it you know, over and over again because when I go somewhere, they don't ask me about Stuart Diver, the ski instructor, or Stuart Diver, the jogger, or the mountain biker. They ask me about Stuart Diver, the person who survived in Threadbow, right to this day. In a celebrity cycle, media coverage creates and then maintains an individual's prominence, which in turn makes them newsworthy when another seemingly interesting story angle can be found. Stuart never sought fame, felt he had no option but to speak publicly, and then became determined not to let anyone exploit his trauma and identity. I'm firmly of the belief that if you're going to make money out of someone else's tragedy, and that's what they're all going to do then, you, you have to pay for that. It's, it's just not a free service. I mean, no, no one gives what they've got away for free. I've given interviews to non-profit organisations where there was no money involved. There was I flew myself to have an interview with people. So I've done interviews external of that 
exclusive money. But if you are a commercial entity, a magazine, a television station or whatever, you're paying for it. Did you at any time feel to the media you were a commodity? Oh, definitely a commodity for the media, without a shadow of a doubt. Oh, but the, not only the media, commodity for various charities, etc. You know, and that's it works beautifully. If I only come out once a year to do interviews or twice a year to do interviews for a certain charity, then I'll always get, because everyone wants to know what I did for the last 12 months, I'll always get a quick interview and away you go. So, I mean, it's de definitely a commodity, but I would see that as a huge positive, you know, for me personally and for the media and for charities, etc. Stuart still considers himself an intensely private person. He wants the high profile he was given to serve a public good rather than simply satisfying public curiosity. Public interest and the public being interested are two different things. Stuart argues that reporting which is centred purely on his personal life doesn't contribute to the well-being of others and the media's right-to-know mantra hides the main aim to attract audiences, boost ratings, sales and views. A lot of this stuff that we go on in television today and in all other forms of the media is just pure voyeurism. I am very sceptical. I think that basically it's an entertainment industry. Yeah, my story, that's why it lasted for so many months afterwards because it was the entertainment factor. But there's a lot of stuff I see on TV of the trauma survivor, etc., being interviewed, and it's just an absolute load of crap. And you're not getting anything out of them. You're getting, gee, I feel sorry for that person because they're sitting there bawling their eyes out or, you know, whatever on TV. And that's about it. They, they're not, it's not contributing anything in any way to society, etc. Stuart doesn't look to insert himself into the lives of other trauma survivors, but has provided some media advice at the request of his rescuers when they've attended other high-profile news events. Just perhaps he can help pave an easier path into public life for someone else. I always feel great sorrow for them because <laughs> I know what they're about to go through. <laughs> they're ones that are articulate and seem to either have someone managing their media for them or know what they're they're actually they're doing, which is about 2% of them, I, um, I have no problem with, but the rest of them, I, I truly I feel sorry for them because I know that basically they're going to get reamed by someone somewhere along the line. They Half of them come across you know, not looking at all of how they would have wanted to. They'll end up bitter and twisted somewhere along the line about how they were portrayed or they didn't get paid for the interview, they didn't realise they could have. They People always do you know, in that end and, and the media just prey on those people and they just take them for a ride. Most trauma survivors drop quickly from view. Their accidental celebrity status rises and falls with media and public attention. The disaster at Threbo is a tragic part of Australia's history, though. Stuart Diver praised and Stuart Diver will always be mentioned in the retelling. The rescuers are describing his survival as one, one chance in a million. million. Every two or three years, I always have a shot at saying, all right, I'm not going to do any interviews, I'm not going to talk to anyone, I'm not going to do any public speaking, I'm going to go back to just being absolutely, totally anonymous and um, who I am, but you just can't do it because then another request will come through and it'll be from a charity that you quite like and then you'll go and do that. And, you know, any shred of personal information, printed or broadcast, helps ensure he will remain a household name and recognisable face, easily identifiable to strangers treated as extraordinary while feeling ordinary. Whether it's real or perceived, there is a continual invasion of your privacy, and whether it's in your subconscious because you think you know, that someone's interested in it or whatever. 
you know, it, it still has an effect on your life. Um, I always think if I put my CV in to get a job, like a normal person would, it'd be quite a funny job interview when you're sitting down. Do you think you could go back to being anonymous, if at all? I don't think so, no. The only thing I can work out after all these years is because of the emotional attachment of that one picture people have with my face, they link that face with me, and because a lot of people obviously were so emotionally attached to me surviving or whatever happened on that that during that period and to the because they always tell me where they were what events happened obviously they're going to remember my face so it is a it's a tricky one for me the face one but it's actually name recognition that's why i say if i change my name i bet because there's no other stuart divers there's only i think i've only been able to locate two stuart divers in the entire world there's seven diver families in australia so it's a very uncommon name so as soon as you say stuart diver to anyone trepo Funniest question they always ask, are you the Stuart Diver? That's what they always ask. That's a classic one. My response, yeah, there's not many of us. How many Stuart Divers do you reckon live in Threadbow? <laughs> you know, it's like, because you've told them where you lived. you told them your name. Uh, okay, not to worry. <laughs> How often does a stranger say they know you or appear to recognise you? You'd think it would get less and less. I mean, I think initially, obviously initially it was a lot, um, but... It's sort of a tricky one being here because obviously people, and that's why we left here for five years, coming back here, people will always, you know, I mean, Threadbow, and if they see me walking around and I've got a name tag on a lot of the time, so therefore they put two and two together. Generally speaking, I'll hear it through when they're three paces past me, so they'll turn around and they go, do you know who that was? I thought moving down the south coast would be, because Tarumia, you know, town of whatever, 15,000, You'd think I could be really anonymous there. It was about three weeks before absolutely every single person in that town knew I'd moved there. And so it is amazing how that's gone on. And I would say 100%, no, 90%, that's purely from over that period how I was portrayed in the, how I was put out there in the media. And the anonymity was gone from that moment on. As soon as my picture and name was up, it was all over. And because that image keeps being reused. Yeah, that's right. That's why I never blame anyone for it. I'm, I, I do it as well. So, But it's not like I've ever set up you know, the Stuart Diver website or done anything, but I do put my name back out there. And you know, and if I wanted to, I have aged and my hair colour is different, et cetera. So you know, if I stop putting myself on the project or whatever show it is, then obviously you'd... Um, yeah, then obviously I would fade there, but then then the Salvos wouldn't have got their 30 interviews. It's a catch-22, and that's where the anonymity doesn't worry me. I always say if I was a criminal, then it would be a bad thing. But as I walk down the street, either people go up and shake my hand, get me to touch their baby, do whatever it is. But that's the insane world that we live in, that you can have me, who's just technically still a skiing instructor from Turbo, who went through something tragic in their life, can be um, built up, through various means, and I've been party to it as well, into this, you know, thing that, you know, this other entity which is still... When I watched again the archived media interviews with Stuart and his family from 1997, I was struck by his mother, Annette Diver's sharp insight into the remarkable situation they faced. It was an extraordinary thing that happened to a very ordinary family. In the midst of enormous suffering, there was euphoria as her ski instructor son emerged from the Threadbow landslide, the sole survivor, a source of media stories open to public scrutiny. Australians have followed his life, how he's coped with the loss of two wives, continued living and working in the Alpine village while raising daughter Alessia alone. As long as reporters and audiences are interested, and he believes he can deliver a positive message of hope and love, 
Stuart Diver will remain an accidental celebrity. Like being on the stage, there is always a light there, and I can guarantee it doesn't matter how far you go down um, the track like me. If something came up that the, with me that the media found some interest in, the spotlight would just be turned up brighter. But it's always there, like it's very dim, but it's still you know, there. And if it gets any point where they think there's a chance of a story, they'll crank it up again the way they go. Next time, The Missing Schoolboy. Bruce and Denise Morecambe were an ordinary couple raising three teenage sons when 13-year-old Daniel disappeared from a bus stop in 2003. They would do anything to get him back, including sacrificing their privacy to appeal for public help. The strongest ally or the, the biggest tool in our arsenal is the media. I suppose if we had interacted with the media, the publicity wouldn't have gone out that far and I don't know whether Daniel's case would have been sold, I don't know. Over a decade from the search to arrest and conviction of the boy's murderer, the Morgans learned how the media operates to secure ongoing coverage. Through their role as child safety campaigners, they've remained high-profile Australians. Bruce and Denise Morecambe now have to consider how others may see them. That's what it's like to become... An Accidental Celebrity. The Accidental Celebrity series is researched, written and produced by me, Fiona Reynolds. Sound design, Term 6 Podcast Productions. Graphics, Cheeky Turtle Productions. Editorial and production support, Sally Eels, Paula Donovan, Sue Bell and Graham Maddy. The term accidental celebrity was coined by leading Australian academics Graham Turner, Francis Bonner and David Marshall. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.